real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back everybody. Nathan Romans with you again. Today, we're going to be talking about policing. Uh, in particular, the role of a sniper. And for that, I have Derek Bartlett on the program. Derek is a 28-year veteran of law enforcement. In Illinois, he spent eight years on SWAT, both as an entry operator and sniper. As a member of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department, he served as a SWAT sniper for over 16 years and was responsible for sniper team training. Serving over 20 years in special operations, have provided him with unique opportunities to travel, work, and train with several elite tactical units and renowned instructors. Derek is the founder and director of Snipercraft Incorporated and provided training to over a thousand agencies between the U.S. and Canada. He's an author and editor for several publications. Uh, he's also the president of the American Sniper Association. Uh, and Derek is the creator and primary instructor of Tactical Vision an observation skills course for police officers and tactical personnel. This program is the next progressive step in officer safety training. So welcome, Derek. Happy to be here. Um, as I was saying before, you came highly recommended by a previous guest I had, John Simpson. Um, can you kind of, maybe before we get into you, can you just talk a bit about how you guys uh, are connected? Many, many years ago, we happened to be speakers at the Illinois Tactical Officers Association Conference. Um, we had seen each other's work online. We had, I had written articles for different publications. John had written articles for publications. So we knew each other by name and reputation. But it just happened that that particular conference, we met face-to-face -face for the first time, sat and talked a bit, decided we had a lot more in common than we thought. And that evening after the conference, our, our duties at the conference were over, we went to Denny's and had pie. <laughs> That's always been our memorable, memorable meeting. We sat down and had slices of pie and talked for hours at Denny's. And that was the beginning of our friendship. Okay, cool. Um, well, you know, maybe we'll uh, get into you here and talk about you growing up and if you could kind of start us with uh, where you come from and um, kind of what growing up was like. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in the Chicago area. Um, spent most of my formative years living in the suburbs. Went to Proviso East High School. Nothing of note during those years. I was just your average, quiet, low-profile teenager and mm. went to Triton College, majored in journalism. Oh. Again, nothing extraordinary out of that. Uh, worked for a couple of local newspapers for a while, trying to get my sea legs. But even though those jobs were interesting and satisfying, they didn't really pay the bills. Um, my brother got hired by the Illinois State Police about that same time frame. And talking to him about career in law enforcement, it seemed interesting and challenging. But applied for a few agencies in Illinois in the Chicago area and got hired by Westmont Illinois PD. Okay. And that was the beginning of my law career. 
All right. Well, so you were actually initially interested in journalism. Uh, is that a thing that you'd always wanted to kind of pursue while growing up? Is that, or do you ever have anything where you're like, ah, policing's always in the back of the mind? Um, I learned early on, back in my grade school days, that I had a like for and a talent for creative writing. Hmm. And, and going through high school, I took several creative writing classes. They were fun. They were satisfying. But when you get to the college level, creative writing is kind of limited to what you can do. So one of my counselors steered me into a journalism track. And so it was a chance to write in a more disciplined fashion. So I worked for the college newspaper for two years. Uh, they did give me some creative freedom in that they gave me a an opinion column to write in my last year on the newspaper staff. So, but I've never ever stopped liking writing. So mm -hmm. that's why when I got into law enforcement. I still continued to write articles for different tactical magazines. At the time, there were more police-oriented magazines being published, like Police Marksman and others. And then when Snipercraft got up and running, writing was our way of getting our message out and spreading the word about who we were and what we were trying to accomplish. So I continued to write articles for different newspapers and magazines. And eventually, I had enough material that was police-oriented that I felt confident to put together a book. And that was the result in my first book, Snipercraft, The Art of the Sniper. And since then, I've continued to write. I, I write for our Snipercraft newsletter every quarter. I've written, I've lost track of how many articles I've written for a newspaper, for magazines over the years, all the tactical magazines for the different associations around the country. Mm -hmm. I've written two more books since the first one. I write, have written most of the material that's in our training manual. So I, I still write as much as I do everything else. Well, even in the bio, uh, when you sent it over, I mean, you have a ton of stuff that you do writing for. That, that was about the, that's why I kind of summarized it down to, uh, you've been in many publications because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you've got a ton of stuff in there. Um, I'm kind of curious. So you said you used to write an opinion uh, piece. Do you ever get in any trouble writing opinions? <laughs> Anytime you take a public stand with an opinion, mm -hmm. you're going to entertain half your audience and piss off the other half. So yeah, I've gotten in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, what were you, um, did you have like a particular topic that you would focus on? No, it was whatever was the hot topic at the mm. time on campus. Uh, probably one I got the most pushback from ever, and it resulted in more column material. The local chapter of the Nazi Party, the National Socialist Party at the time, mm. wanted to do a demonstration on our, our college campus. And they got permission to do so. Hmm. And I went there, I sat through it, witnessed it, and I wrote an opinion piece saying how stupid they were and how archaic they were and how <laughs> stuff they were. I just made fun of them. And yeah. people loved it, but they were pissed off enough that they complained to the college administration. They insisted for a chance to confront me and my journalism instructor very wisely said, well, let's arrange a public debate. And we did it in the college auditorium. Wow. Me on stage with my, my advisor and 
at one table and Frank Reich and a couple of his Nazi goons sitting at another table. And we had a back and forth in front of the, the campus and all students and teachers. And it was fun. <laughs> they got a chance to show just how ignorant they were on a public stage and they got booed out of the room eventually. So, oh, really? Yeah. Be upset for you when you write stuff. What year was this? That was 1974. Wow. And were, were you debating just the fact, like, was it a free speech thing or is it just everything, anything, their beliefs and everything was kind of on the table? Everything was on the table. They want to talk about race mixing. They want to talk mm. about um, education. They want to talk about freedom of speech as they saw it. Uh, they wanted to talk about the fact that they didn't think that blacks were equal to whites. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. all their usual nonsense. And this was a chance to pull back the, the curtain and show them in public for who they were and what they were. And they, they didn't like the exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, when you're coming from those kind of uh, opinions, they, I don't know, it's not too hard to make people look stupid. <laughs> so, um, well, so one thing maybe is when you're transitioning into the world of policing, was there any kind of uh, roadblocks there when it came to race? Or did you have like a, did your family say anything and say like, ah, maybe we don't want you doing that kind of career? My parents weren't enthusiastic about it. I mean, they had enough heartburn when my brother got hired <laughs> for the Illinois State Police. And then when I got hired, they were equally upset and hesitant about us getting into law enforcement. And although I didn't think race was a big deal, it, it turned out career-wise it was because at the time that I got hired for Westmont PD, I was the first and only black employee they'd ever had. Oh, like employee in general, not just a police officer. In the whole city, there was not another black employee at all. Wow. So me being the first one as a police officer, Raised a few eyebrows and caused a little bit of heartache. Mm -hmm. And I dealt with my fair share of racists and rednecks during my eight years. And it was kind of shocking for me. I mean, I, was, I had been at a high school where there was as many black students as white students. In college, again, there was not a racial divide that was evident. But going into the workforce, and especially living in the Chicago area, it was a, a bit of a culture shock for me to suddenly be faced with people calling me all sorts of names mm -hmm. because I'm black. Yeah. And having to deal with that whole level of resistance from certain people. But I just, I found that it was more satisfying to beat them with words than to beat them with a nice stick. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good advice even nowadays. Uh, a lot of people, it's the, you know, sticks and stones kind of idea. And, but now people really believe like words are the violent part. I was like, well, I mean, being on this job, we know there's, there's more to it than just words when you're talking about violence. So um, how did you find uh, kind of going through training and well, maybe even before that recruiting, was there any issues at recruiting? No, I mean, it was never mentioned. My race didn't raise anybody's eyebrows when I was going through the processing. Nobody said a single word to me. Hmm. But after I got hired, then it was made evident to me. One of my FTOs 
one night we're going through the neighborhood and he pulls over and stops. And this is after I had been on FPO for probably a couple of months. So I was more or less a fixture with the agency. But he pulls me over, pulls over and goes, you know, when you first got hired here, a lot of us thought that you were a plant from the FBI. Really? Wow. I go, what do you mean by that? He says, yeah, no, we, when they told us that we were going to have a black cop, we just knew that you were being put here by the government to spy on. I'm going, well, I'm going to show you I don't work for the FBI and nobody from the FBI has ever talked to me about you. Yeah. And we left it at that. But it, it was such a bizarre experience and such a bizarre statement to get from this guy. So did you find, uh, what about the public? So when you're dealing with the public and you're in uniform, do you get it worse from one side or the other as you're going through your career? Uh, or is it just individual ignorance is kind of everywhere? It was individual ignorance. Most people were accepting of the fact that there was a black cop in Westmont, but there's always those who just was new to them and they couldn't deal with it. Um, there were a couple of occasions where I would respond to a call for service on night shift and would be knocking on somebody's door more than once. Mm. I had the cops call on me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the call would go in at some black man is on my front porch trying to get into my house. Jeez. And then I would end up saying, turning around, seeing a DuPage County deputy pull up behind me and goes, what's going on? I said, you got me? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, man. So I would prove myself, even though I'm wearing a uniform and I have a marked patrol car mm -hmm. in the driveway, I would have to prove to certain people that I was a legitimate cop. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, I mean, not completely the same context, but... We still get that nowadays. I've shown up at people's homes with the fully marked SUV in uniform, standing just on the other side of a uh, you know a sliding door, painted glass, and they don't believe you're a cop. I was like, I don't know what else I could bring to this call for you to let me in this building. <laughs> but um, so your career kind of uh, it seems like you're really focused on um, being a sniper. You've got many many years in there. Can you talk a little bit about what you, what areas you might have worked before that? So from the time you first got in, where your career's kind of gone? Um, well, when I was in Westmont, there wasn't a whole lot of variety. I got on the SWAT team after getting through probation. Um, gravitated to the SWAT team because I was young and physically fit and all that type of stuff. So they kind of recruited me to get on. I gravitated to the rifle because at the time, nobody else in the SWAT team wanted to be a sniper. Mm. So I got kind of pushed to it, which at first I hesitated because I had never shot a rifle before going to SWAT school. Oh, really? Not once in my entire life. But once I started shooting one, I felt like this is something that I can put some energy in to learn more about it. So it became an intellectual challenge as much as a physical one. So I put everything I could into learning how to be a shooter, but also in learning more about being a sniper, which looking back at the time, wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> Snipers weren't real well-trained. They weren't real thought, well thought of. So being a sniper was basically, if you knew which way to point the rifle and how to pull the trigger, you qualified. But at some point in time with my career at Westmont, because it was a small department and there wasn't a whole lot of room for growth, um, other than getting promoted to sergeant, I figured I need to go someplace bigger. And at the time, I was at a 
point in my career where I needed to make a decision of what I wanted to do long term. And after spending an evening one night on the Route 83 in an ice storm, handling a series of car crashes, I made the decision that I did not want to go through another winter. Mm -hmm. So I went to Florida on vacation and said, this is where I want to be for the next 15, 20 years of my career. Started testing, got hired by Fort Lauderdale and got on there. And once again, once I did my probation, openings were announced for the SWAT team. I put in for it, I passed the PT test. In my interview, I told them about my SWAT background in Illinois. And when I said I had been trained as a sniper, I could see the eyes of the panel light up. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, we need snipers. So I got picked and almost immediately again pushed into the sniper position. So that's where it started. Well, how come people don't want to? Be a sniper. What what would be the reasons why? Because at the time, sniper was viewed as the place where you put the guys who are too old, too fat, too lazy, or too injured to do the cool stuff. Mm. Entry, entry was spot. The two of them were synonymous, and it was cool to run around and kick indoors, and mm -hmm. do all the intimidating things that spot entry guys are visualized doing in the movies and television. And being a sniper, you're viewed as being this guy who's off in the shadows, off in the distance, away from all the real activity and the real work. And you just lay there and wait and things go horribly sideways. They say, okay, you've got a green light. So nobody wanted that job. Mm -hmm. But as I got into it, uh, one of the things that spurred snipercraft into existence was the fact that we, I realized that there was more to the job. And that the job was something that was, in addition to being extremely important, should be something that is extremely treasured. Tre 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 mm -hmm. So we have always promoted snipers as being the elite of the elite, that they are the most important people on the SWAT team because of the functions that they fulfill, and that being a sniper should be a desired position and not be viewed as punishment or banishment. And if you make people understand what snipers do and the role they play, it becomes attractive. Okay. So that's been our goal over the years. Well, what um, can you tell, tell us any memorable calls that you've been to or, or major events that you've been a part of as the sniper? Anything kind of come to mind? Boring <laughs> life as a sniper. We want lots and lots of call outs. Never shot by. I'll, I'll put that out right away. Mm. Had several occasions where it was close. Uh, two in particular where I actually had my finger on the trigger waiting for one more thing to happen before I actually pressed it. But our SWAT team during the time that I was there was very fortunate. We didn't get into a whole lot of ugly situations. The team as a whole only had to use deadly force a few times against individuals and it was always entry guys that were involved in those um, but some of the more memorable ones were the ones that were, you didn't shoot i had one where a guy was holding hostages on a yacht the yacht's name was defiance it always stuck to my head mm -hmm. and he was there with eight or nine hostages on this yacht and i ended up in a position at the end of the pier so it was probably like 175 yards away from the actual yacht. We couldn't get closer because we found out that the yacht had 
remote cameras all around it. Mm-hmm. If he made any kind of approach sitting in the, in the command center, you could watch on video any movement around the yacht in, in the marina. So 175 was about as close as I could get. And I sat there and watched that all evening long as the rest of the SWAT team was getting on scene. I was the very first one there because this started when I was working midnight shift and we got called there for shots being fired on the yacht. But anyway, um, so I'm watching this guy doing all these different things and hearing all these different things that are being said over the radio as he's talking to negotiators. And at one point in time, he, when he's coming out of the door of the yacht to surrender, supposedly, I see him point a gun at our team, but he's behind the door. So I'm waiting for him to give me something that I can shoot at. And just before he comes enough far enough forward, he spins the revolver on his, thing, his trigger finger, so he's holding the barrel and then throws it to the deck. Oh, really? And then steps clear. So he doesn't realize just how close he came to catch the bullet. Mm-hmm. But other than that, most of the calls were the usual run-of-the-mill, as they call routine calls. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that uh, shows a good point, though, that um, maybe dispels a few of the narratives out there, too. Like, police aren't... Uh, uh, police are generally looking to avoid any kind of shooting incident. You don't... We don't go out there every day going like, boy, I need to get uh, get some here and, you know, shoot somebody. We do everything in our power possible right to the last second and then something changes, right? Where you don't have to pull the trigger on somebody. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, someone was actually just telling me a stat the other day um, that they're doing a study right now on use of force. This is on the Canadian side of things. So trying to get more data up here on this. Um, I guess they interviewed like a class of university kids and it was something like 75% of them thought that it was like one in four uh, interactions with police ended up in like uh, grievous bodily harm or death. I was like, if there was that many, like we go to millions of calls a day, you would have no people left. Uh, it's crazy though. People have this image of what a police officer does or a sniper does uh, from movies and TV. It's like, it's, yeah, it's not that. <laughs> so, no, not at all. And that public image is what works against us in so many places goes everybody thinks that every time cops show up somebody's going to get hurt or die and really if you go through a hundred calls you may have to use actual physical force two or three times and deadly force mm-hmm. out of a thousand times so mm-hmm. now the statute just because people base their worldview on what they see on youtube and youtube is always going to feature the deadly interactions and not the casual everyday today type of interaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's feeding into the algorithms and, and giving you all the stuff that you, you look up in the first place and it just keeps giving you more of it. Um, so your career kind of spans uh, a couple decades and then this, you get into sniper craft. Is that the first business that you started um, as you were in or just leaving policing? Was there some, any other stuff you were kind of getting into? Actually, I started Snipercraft while I was deep into policing. In fact, I started Snipercraft okay. after I had been with Fort Lauderdale for two years. Oh, really? Okay. So how did that kind of come to be? 
I always tell people that Snipercraft started because I got angry. Oh, really? Uh, we had, my sniper team had been sent to what was built as an advanced sniper school that was being held in Dade County. And we went there and it was five wasted days as far as we're concerned. It, it was a terrible class, absolutely terrible. Wow. So when we got back and our boss asked us for our uh, feedback on the class and we told him all the, the wasted time that we had spent and how little we learned as a result of this class, I chirped up and said, we could have put on a better class than they did, mm-hmm. just based on what we do on a regular basis. And he said, and I'm sure he regrets it, well, maybe we should put something together. Well, don't give me a task because I will always fulfill it. Mm-hmm. So a week later, I laid out an entire outline for going in advanced skills sniper class and showed it to him. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa slow, slow down. We don't want to jump into this too quickly. How about if we start smaller? How about if we put together a, a sniper competition? Mm-hmm. I said, okay. Well, a week later when we showed up for training, I had full outline for putting on a sniper competition right down to logistics, where we can hold it, when we can hold all that stuff. Wow. And he kind of hemmed and hawed and fought over it, but he said, okay, let's, let's see if we can make this fly. So we went to our chief, and then he went to the legal advisor and said, how can we do this? And the legal advisor basically said, they can do it, but they can't do it under the banner of Fort Lauderdale Police Department because of potential liability. Okay. So they have to form it to do it so i went and did the paperwork and got us incorporated as snipercraft in the state of florida as a nonprofit organization and we hosted our first sniper tournament wow under that banner and then even though the original intention of snipercraft was just to hold that tournament the feedback that we got was so positive and encouraging that we held another tournament eight months later that one we expanded, we made it into a sniper team competition, and we added a third day to it as a educational seminar. It was known then as Sniper Weekend. And after Sniper Weekend, we started getting requests to do a sniper training, which again, wasn't my original plan when I envisioned this thing. So we relented and started offering one and two day workshops, but that wasn't enough. So we started getting more requests from different places including other parts of the state. So eventually we put together a basic sniper school and started teaching it under the banner of Snipercraft. And the rest, as they say, is history. We've been doing sniper classes all around the country for 29 years. And Sniper Weekend grew into Sniper Week, and we just finished our 31st Sniper Week. So we've been around a while. <laughs> well, and you, uh, you so you've trained with Americans and Canadians. Uh, are you getting people from all over the world at, uh, at your school? We have had people come in from Germany, from the UK, from South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a Norwegian team one year come in to train with us. So, yeah, we had teams from Kuwait. Wow. So, and a team from Saudi Arabia. So, we, we've We've reached a lot of people from around a lot of teams around the country and around the world. Well, it's pretty neat that you know your your name gets out there that far. You wouldn't think like halfway around the world. Um, 
One thing I wanted to ask you was, and I was reading this uh, somewhere, was there's a, like what the difference between a police sniper and a military sniper might be. Is there a big difference? The biggest one is where they work. Mm-hmm. Military snipers are always going to be overseas in some war zone or combat zone. And because of that, their environment, their training requirements, their equipment requirements, their rules of engagement are completely different. Law enforcement snipers are working in their jurisdictions and the potential targets that they may have to be dealing with are American citizens. Mm-hmm. And there are different rules and regulations that apply and you can use deadly force against American citizens. So the environment they're going to work in is different. The targets they're going to be dealing with are different. The rules and laws that guide how they operate are going to be different. So while police and military snipers share some similarities and mm-hmm. they both shoot long rifles at targets, uh, the differences between the two are important and stark. Yeah. Well, and kind of on the same theme, do you see a difference between people who do target shooting as opposed to snipers? And what I kind of mean with that is, is you know, uh, I've seen it with pistols a little bit. Like, so we'll get people who are really good at competition shooting. But when you get into moving and shooting, uh, sometimes it doesn't translate as well when you're in a, like a police scenario. So do you see that same with sniping? Yes, because we get lots of inquiries from the target shooting community, especially wanting to come to Sniper Week, and we always turn them down. They're not allowed to participate. And, of course, they get their dander up, and they get their feelings hurt, and they <laughs> say things like, you just don't want us to be there because we're going to show up all your police snipers because they don't shoot so well. And I said, yeah, if we, if they shot the way you had to shoot in your competition, you probably would show them up. Yeah. But I was told both from the target shooting community, you're going to be shooting at a cardboard target that is stapled to a backer, that is staked into the ground, that's completely stationary. You're going to be allowed time to figure out where it is, how far it is, how big it is, do all of your calculations, and take your shots when you think the conditions are perfect. Mm-hmm. is going to be shooting at a live animated human target at unknown distances unknown situations unknown lighting conditions at a time of his choosing and not yours and he is not going to be cooperating in any kind of way with your ability to put a bullet in it mm-hmm. it's completely different circumstances if I put you in their circumstances you would not excel at it mm-hmm. well yeah 100% right is one of the things that I, I like that you pointed out there is um, you're shooting at a time of, the, I guess, the targets choosing when you're in the policing world. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? We always tell our students that the person who decides when a shot has to be taken isn't you. It's your, your, your bad guy because he's going to be in your crosshairs, acting peaceful, acting rational, but at some point in time, he's going to do something. He's going to point a gun at a hostage. He's going to point a gun at one of your teammates. Mm-hmm. He's going to rush. He's going to do some covert action that says, I have to shoot him now. He's not going to give you a heads up. He's not going to give you a, a countdown. It's going to be 
instantaneous and spontaneous. And you don't have any input in that. Mm. All you can do is respond to the stimulus when he says go. Yeah. Well, I think that that I mean that's true for a lot of police interactions, uh, whether it's shooting or uh, just simple use of force. Uh, a lot of people's behavior dictates your response. One of the things I wanted to get into a little bit was the mental side of sniping. Um, do you guys have like is there a part of a program that's built into your school that talks about you know um, not so much on the PTSD side of things but just the mental side so you're sitting there for you could be sitting there for hours um knowing that i still got to pay attention for this whole time i might have to take a shot what if i miss the shot um do you kind of go through all those things that is integrated into every part of our, our training from day one we make them understand that sniping is not just about pulling a trigger that this is an integrated skill set that requires them to be Good listeners, good thinkers, good observers. It requires them to be objective at all times and not let their emotions overshadow their ability to look at a scene dispassionately and rationally and see what's there and not what they're looking for. Those types of phrases are repeated to them over and over again. So we're trying to make them good decision makers, also good information gatherers because their primary reason for being there is to observe and report. Mm which means they have to objectively see what's going on downrange to pass it on to everybody else. So they can also make good, sound, rational decisions about what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. And then in the aftermath of actually having to make a decision to press the trigger and use deadly force against a human being, give them the tools to help to understand this is how you may react to it. Your reaction is unique to you. It is not something that you're going to go through checklist of emotions because somebody else went through that checklist of emotions your reaction is going to be unique to you mm -hmm. this is what you can expect this is how you can deal with it and these are the tools available to you if you're having trouble dealing with it so we want you to come out of this not just surviving the gunfight but we want you to survive the aftermath so all that's integrated into our training well and are is it, like as a sniper i'm thinking of how complicated taking a shot might be uh, I'm doing a, a long-range shooting course next week. It'll be the first one I've ever taken. And uh, the information that the instructor wanted us to send ahead of time, uh, like about the type of scope and what the you know measurements are in and your calibers and everything that goes into the, the rifle, I don't think people really have an appreciation for how complex of a job that is. Um, but are, are, as a sniper, is it, um, is it like you see in the movies, the the one shot, one kill kind of idea? Or have people missed most of the time because you're shooting through, you could be shooting through glass, you could be shooting through some sort of barricade maybe, or something where you, you know, it changes the trajectory of the round. Um, like, is it is it theoretically, is it okay to miss? It is never okay to miss. Mm -hmm. It's happening. But it's never okay. It should never be accepted as okay. Your goal is to try and solve your problem as quickly as possible. Yeah. A miss extends that quickly as possible. So we never encourage them to say it's okay to miss or to accept that. We just make them aware of the fact that sometimes snipers miss with the first shot and the second shot and the third shot. But while you're missing, 
their problem is just getting worse downrange. Um, but this leads back to the fact that snipers can't be the dumping ground. It can't be the guy who can't cut it in other parts of the SWAT team, so we'll make him a sniper. The sniper has to be the smartest person on your team. Mm-hmm. He has to be the best student. He has to be the best athlete. He has to be eventually the best shooter because there is so much responsibility put on him to perform in this pressure-packed environment that he needs to be as close to a predictable, perfect performance all the time as you can make a human possible. Perfection isn't doable. There are going to be mistakes. There are going to be lapses. But a sniper has to be a person who is always striving to be as close to perfect on demand as he can possibly be. And you don't get that from some guy who's there because he can't cut it as an entry. Yeah. Well, how do you, like, I'm I'm kind of wondering, like, how you would train a person to, maybe, I'm trying to think how to word it. If you, I think a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to sit in a field and just shoot at something, whether it's moving or not, kind of irrelevant, but it's like, I'm just shooting at something and it's a clear, straight line of sight. But now, when you're talking about like an urban environment, you're talking about different angles. You're shooting downward or straight ahead. Um, maybe there's glass. Uh, you have a moving target. It's like, so you're, I guess, they're trained to account for all these different things that could come into play once you pull the trigger and that round leaves. Like you got to know how that bullet's going to react through all these different uh, things along the way. Is that kind of what the training prepares you for? It better be, because <laughs> that's the real world the snipers are going to have to perform in. They need to lose their flat range mentality mm-hmm. and just run their abilities and shooting at targets at 100 yards. They need to look at what real snipers do in the rest of the real world and formulate their training to simulate as much of those conditions as is possible different positions, different distances, different lighting conditions, different shooting platforms, all those are realistic and they need to be incorporated. But the only way you learn how to do it is to do it in training. Yeah, You shouldn't be shooting across the hood of a car in a semi-standing position at some bad guy who's partially exposed behind a hostage for the very first time on a call out. Mm-hmm. That should have been something that you tried to do simulate in training over and over again to the point where you're confident I can do this on demand. So what's um what's the typical program for a sniper to go through to get trained up to you know be be at the level they're supposed to be? In a perfect world, they would go to a good quality basic sniper school first. Um nothing less than 40 hours I I can't see being able to put all the things that need to be taught to a basic sniper starting from scratch in less than five days and 40 hours. Mm. So I cringe when I see the advertisements for a two and three day sniper school. Mm-hmm. And then they need to come back to their team and they need to be doing ongoing training every single month throughout the year because a basic sniper school can only teach you so much, but there is so much more that needs to be taught before he is fully operationally ready and versatile. Um, the standard that we've established with the American Sniper Association for a sniper team is 192 hours a year of sniper training. Okay. And that's to cover all the things that need to be covered with the 
frequency and length of time that we think is necessary to learn, master, and maintain a skill set. Hmm. So it's not a quick fix to become non-sniper to sniper. It's it's an ongoing educational process. Well, so um, so every year you have to maintain and requalify on um, all your firearms, I guess, and and some of your skills. Uh, have you seen any, like who, who kind of does it the best? Like, is there a person that, or an organization outside of your own <laughs> that, um, you would say is like, okay, these are, these are the, the models that people should look to as far as sniper training. Yeah. Hmm. That's hard to say because <laughs> anybody that I say isn't doing it's going to get pissed off at me because I'm, they think I'm self-promoting. Oh, okay. There are schools out there that we think have quality instructors and have a reputation for doing quality jobs. I won't go on the air saying any of the names because again, I won't put off the ones I don't mention. But if somebody wants to email me or call me, I'll be more than happy to tell them who we have on our list of schools that we recommend and those that we say definitely stay away from. Well, um, actually even on that, uh, so you, the ASA, what, um, like, do you set the standards for snipers across the nation, or is it like within the state, or how does that work? The American Sniper Association, we put it together in 2000 at the request of a lot of snipers around the country. Because at the time, the National Tactical Association was in existence, but they cater more to entry guys more than anything else. And all the state associations around the country, again, cater primarily to entry personnel. So we wanted to put together an association that was going to address specifically the sniper community. So we put it together and we decided that among our tasks that we wanted to become the standard bearers for setting standards for equipment and for training and for policies and all the things that we as working snipers have always wanted in our lives. So we would put together committees and we would decide what are best practices for equipment? What are best practices for the types of uniforms that snipers should be wearing? What are best practices mm. on training hours and content? And these would be consensus opinions. It wouldn't be just Derek Bartlett saying, okay, the standard is going to be 192 hours. Mm-hmm. We spend time in discussions. We would do research. We would work out justifications for all the positions that we would take. And if we all felt that this was a reasonable expectation because of our experiences and because of what we see as a need in the community, then it would become an official policy paper and it would become published as an industry standard. So the whole idea of the 192 hours, we spent several years looking at what we think needs to be taught to snipers, everything that all the basic skills they need to have what type of instruction it takes to teach all those skills, how long does it take to teach all those skills, how many times a year should these skills be refreshed and, and revisited, and we assign time values to all this, and we total it up, and it comes out to 203 hours a year. Wow. And we, okay, 203 hours. Some of it is crossover training that you can do with entry, but in order for us to cover all these things that we think are on our matrix, 203 hours, we can cut it down to something rational, 16 hours a month, works out to 192 hours a year. That's amazing though. That's the standard. This is necessary. Yeah. 
we approached NTOA with this standard and they agreed. So in their official policy paper, which they just released, they are saying for entry, it's 192 hours a month. If you have a special assignment like cyber, it's 192 hours a month. If you're trying to do both, and it's 384 hours a month for all year for training to cover all the disciplines adequately to be fully operational and fully functional. Okay. Adrian, are there any, uh, when you get people coming in and, and training, are there any kind of myths that they come in with that you have to kind of debunk for them? Anybody come in with some weird uh, expectations? Well, one of the longest outstanding myths in the sniper world is that the average distance of the shot is 72 yards. You hear that one a lot. Even to this day, we just proved that one ages ago. Mm-hmm. We hear mythology about cleaning a lot. There's a whole school of thought that snipers should leave their rifle dirty all the time because if you clean it, you'll mess it up for all sorts of stupid reasons. <laughs> so we, we explain the science behind why you should have a clean rifle when you put it in your bag at the end of a training day. Um, mm-hmm. There's mythology about targeting the fatal T box that has been taught forever and ever. And we, again, have to dispel the T boxes nonsense. It's limiting that the proper physiological targeting is the cranial vault. And we have to explain what a cranial vault is and how the science of, of high-velocity gunshot wound into a cranial vault gets you the instant incapacitation that everybody talks about with sniper shots. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked we have to deal with the mythology of ammunition choices. One for a long time, the federal gold medal match bullet was the the prime choice of ammo for snipers around the country, and it was by default because it was a really accurate shooting round. And teams would shoot really good groups on paper with it, and they were really pleased because it made them feel like they were really good snipers. But we were able to see and to document that when you shoot humans with that bullet. It has a real nasty habit of going right through them. Mm, okay. Coming out the other back and going through several things behind them, like building. Mm-hmm. And after being able to illustrate that and educate people about it, we started showing that there's better bullets that were designed specifically for terminal performance and tissue, and you should be using that. So slowly but surely, and it's taken us all 25 years to make this happen, more teams now are using purpose design bullets for terminal performance, and the federal gold medal match is now in a great minority. There are still teams out there using it for all the wrong reasons, but I would say it's probably like a 90 10 split now with people using the correct ammunition as, as opposed to the target shooting. Okay. Well, I know, like even our firearms unit here, they talk about those things all the time. They, uh, when it comes to the pistols or the rifles, they've got specific reasons why you use a certain type of ammo because different performance for the different type of job you're doing. Um, just before we get to the end of our time here, I want to make sure uh, we got to talk about Sniper Week, maybe just in a little more detail. Uh, can you kind of explain to people Sniper Week, who shows up for this, maybe some of the, the different components to the event? Sniper Week is a four-day event that's held here in Central Florida every spring, usually the first week of May. The first two days is a, an educational conference. We bring in speakers to talk about a variety of different police sniper-oriented topics. Uh, this year, we had a class on tripods. We had a class 
on mental health. We have a class on body-worn cameras. Mm. And then we have a heavy emphasis on bringing in snipers who have been involved in shootings to give first-hand debrief. And those are always very popular because it's a chance to vicariously live through some of the snipers' experience and see the good things and the bad things that have happened to them as a result of them being involved in this. And I have to give those guys a lot of credit because most of them are very honest about their assessment of what they did, what their teams did. So they're willing to stand up in front of their peers and say, this is a mistake that we made. Don't make it when you are faced with this. So those are really good lessons that to be passed on. So the first two days focuses on education. The second two days is called the Snipercraft Challenge, and we build it as a competitive training event. It's a chance for sniper teams to come out and be put to the test with their rifles to see how well they can shoot under conditions that we dictate to them. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the years, we get in lots and lots of incident reports of sniper shooting. And when we get them, I personally sit down with them and I dissect them. I look at the distances, the shooting positions, Target exposures, special circumstances of the incidents. And I use that as criteria to design numerous courses of fire. Then, at the competitive event, over the course of two days, we put sniper teams into scenarios and situations where they have to demonstrate on demand those different skills. So, there's very little prone bipod shooting in this competition. Mm. And it's a chance for snipers to, to show that they can communicate, that they can strategize, that they can plan, that they can shoot from a variety of different positions, a variety of different distances, on demand and under stress. And some teams do well at it, and some teams get their lunch money stolen <laughs> because they find out the hard way they're not really good at this. Mm-hmm. They have only trained to be good, solid bulldog shooters. They're not trained to be snipers. And hopefully it makes some teams go back and reassess what they're doing with their training and come back all the better in the future. Some teams leave and they're pissed off at us because we showed them for what they were. And that's the wrong person to be mad at because all we're doing is holding up a mirror for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I said, we just finished our 31st year of doing that. We have teams come in from all over the country. This year, we didn't have any international teams, but we had a team come all the way from Hawaii for it. Okay. So it it draws a wide and diverse audience every single year. And it's, it's a good time, it's a chance to make some new contacts, some new friends, just see what's the latest and greatest in equipment, mm-hmm. challenge yourself, new skills, and hopefully go back better snipers. Yeah. Well, and on that, um, this tactical vision course uh i wanted to ask about that um i just saw it at the end of the of the bio that you had sent so can you just talk a bit about this course and uh the purpose of it tactical vision was born out of the fact that in the early days teaching observation to sniper teams used to just entail okay we'll put a bunch of things in the tree line you'll stand here at this line with your binoculars and try and spot them and we would say axioms like Pay attention to detail and those types of things. But I always felt that there was something missing from observation training. It should, should have been something more. In a conversation I had with John one day, he says he felt the same way. 
And one day he calls me at the office, and I always tell this story at the beginning of the tactical vision class. He calls me at the office, and he says, I think I found who we're missing. And I say, well, what is it? He says, I can't tell you. I have to show you. So okay. when we get together, and he shows me this information that he had come upon on a topic called perceptual blindness. And it was material, scientific research that had been done for almost 100 years that showed how the eye and brain are integrated into the visual system, and that because we don't understand the dynamics of it, we see much less of the world than we think we see, and a lot of what we think we see is an actual creation of our memory. Mm. And because of that, and because that's the way people go through life, they aren't really good observers. Mm-hmm. So we started integrating that philosophy into some of the training exercises we did, and we got lots of positive feedback saying, we want more of this. So I spent time and effort putting together a more comprehensive lesson on this whole thing. And it went from an hour-long block of instruction in basic class to a two-hour block of instruction for SWAT teams to finally a a full eight-hour presentation that teaches observation from the ground up. It teaches the dynamics of how vision works. It shows you the limitations of what your visual system is. the visual mistakes that you make as a result of it that you're completely unaware of. And then it shows you how to integrate control of your visual skills into your everyday job as a police officer, as a SWAT officer, and as, as a sniper. And I personally think it's one of the greatest classes out there. But of course, I'm biased. But I, I tell people all the time, this is a tough class to sell to agencies because it's a class that you don't realize you need it until you've had it. Mm-hmm. When you realize how bad you are at observation, suddenly you go, wow, I wish I had learned this at the academy level. Yeah, And it's been an ongoing battle with it. We've been teaching the tactical vision classes in different places around the country for 14 years now. But it's still not as widespread as we'd like to see it. But everywhere we go, the, the reviews are always 100% positive because people go, yeah, this is really eye-opening pardon the pun, and we really, really needed this. So it's not just for uh, snipers, it's for police in general. Uh, People can sign up for it. Yeah, and anybody who uses our eyes for a living would benefit (laughs) from it. Awesome. Well, um, we're kind of coming up to the end of the time. I want to make sure to give you time to say how people can follow you and your work. So how do people find you? Well, you can go to snipercraft.org for the Snipercraft website. You can go to americansniper.org for the ASA website. There's email links to both of those and they'll send emails directly to me. That's the best way to re- contact me. You're uh, you're not on all, any of the social media, hey? We have a, an Instagram page, which okay. is Snipercraft. No, we are Snipercraft. is the Instagram page for Snipercraft. And American Sniper Association is the Instagram for ASA. Okay. I'll make sure I put up the links when I get the episode up. Um, So, yeah, I think we got to everything we were looking at getting to. I want to say thanks. Uh, Hang on the line for two seconds. I'll say bye offline. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on today. It's very informative. Um, Definitely (laughs) eye-opening, to use the pun. So, yeah, no, thank you. You're welcome.